The system contains adult content and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. At the time I got arrested, I was home watching TV. My fiance, she was mingling around the house and she said she looked out the window and she said she saw a bunch of police officers. So I was headed actually toward the door to open the door up is when they kicked it in. And the first thing that went through my mind was, okay, I'm getting arrested again for drugs. But I haven't sold any drugs since I got arrested and got out on bond. I thought I'd never with no drugs in the house. Because I didn't want them tearing the house up. Because I know how my partner felt about that. And actually, when they kicked everyone around and broke the door, I'm thinking about what she's going to say. So immediately, they threw me down on the floor and roughed me up a little bit and put the cuffs on me. The rough up really didn't bother me. I was just more concerned about the door they just kicked in. I was going to open it for them, but they kicked it in. And so they put cuffs on me, and I heard one of the officers say that I don't think it's him. They put me in a police car, and we headed off to Besiris. I was in Crestline at the time, at the home I was living in. And on the way to the Cyrus County Jail, where they took me, eventually took me at, uh, the cop was still telling the other officer that I don't think this is the guy, I don't think this is the guy. And so when they took me over to Cyrus and the courthouse, uh, I seen a lot of cameras, a lot of people. So the first thing went through my mind is, um, okay, maybe I got arrested for something I don't know nothing about. And they take me over in the county and started processing me. Nobody still told me anything. And then they took me across the, the street after the media gathered up again. You know, seeing media like I never saw it before. You're charged with murder and three counts of attempted murder. What do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> so they took me in there and, you know, I'm talking about a million dollars bond. And at that point, they said a million dollars bond. Believe me, me being naive, I kind of felt important. Okay, the guys here this, you know, they really think I'm, you know, I was naive, I was 30 years old. When they took me back over, uh, but at that point they told me what I was being charged with. You know, as soon as they told me what the charges was going to be, all of that I thought I was important went out the door. No, they arrested me for this murder and I had this unbelievable feeling. I'm Kim Kardashian, and this is The System. Kevin says he wasn't expecting the arrest at all, so much so that he was at home watching soap operas when the police kicked in his door. Supposedly, the police were even shocked to find Kevin there in such an unguarded state. 
And Kevin wasn't the only one taken by surprise. I was sitting in college in class one day and they were doing a roll call. And uh, the professor got to my name and he called out Keith, Charles Keith. This is Charles, Kevin's older brother. And somebody in the class says, hey, are you related to that guy that was on the news this morning? And I was inquisitive, what guy? 30-year-old Kevin Keith was arrested at his home in Crestline, halfway between Bucyrus and Mansfield. He is charged with three counts of murder for allegedly killing three members of the Chapman family, including a four-year-old girl. And he says, well, his name is Keith. He's from Crestline, Ohio. And when I heard Crestline, I knew it was my family because that's where I was born and raised. I knew the victims in this particular case. I had grown up with the victims, their family. Um, our family were very close-knit at the time we were growing up. We played together, we played Little League Baseball, we all went to school together, high school, elementary, junior high. Uh, you know, they were family friends. There was no controversy. I mean, everybody was young. There wasn't a lot of a very large black population in Crestline. So, yeah, everybody was more so family. I didn't see Kevin immediately after his arrest. Uh, I didn't see him for like maybe two or three weeks. Uh, there was a lot of things going on. I allowed the, the process to uh, take place. There was a lot of information I didn't have. So I didn't come on the scene as, you know, as the savior. I just wanted to know, you know, what was going on and be there to support my brother. I didn't set out to prove his innocence. I just had to find out for myself how could they have found that my brother was guilty so that I could relay this information to my family. Uh, I wasn't convinced at all. I know Kevin's character. Me being the older brother, uh, we were without a father, so I was more so uh, the older brother father figure. Kevin was a jovial guy. He was more laid back, more of a goofy, silly type guy, you know, always laughing. He always had a joke. I can never even recall him being in a fight. Uh, now, if they'd have said that he was talking about somebody or said something about somebody, that would have been more believable. But the hostility, the violence of this magnitude, I knew that wasn't Kevin's demeanor at all. Uh, so when they came out and said that Kevin Keith had done this heinous crime, I knew in my heart right there he didn't do it. I knew he didn't do it. I mean, beyond a doubt. But again, you know, giving respect to the law and the investigation and what the police had, I had to at least pay attention to that. You know, show me, that's all I ask, show me where he's guilty. And, and I would have to walk away from this. Kevin was never interrogated. Uh, I didn't know that until I had talked to him. In fact, the newspapers had covered that. He was never asked, did he do it or did he not do it? Uh, I mean, the police never really sat him down to ask him one single question. He actually didn't even know that he was under arrest uh, for the murder. During this case, they never found any, any evidence uh, of any kind linking Kevin to the case. They checked for fingerprints. They checked blood fibers, they checked the carpet, they checked his clothes for glass fibers. I mean, anything that they could find. Uh, the BCI had stated that there was not anything to tie Kevin Keith physically to this case. He had four alibi witnesses placing him 30 minutes away from the crime scene. They had no physical evidence whatsoever. They found him guilty and he was given 
the death penalty. I'm willing to accept that he was found guilty, but no one ever proved to me that he did it. Show me that he did it, and I'll walk away. I'll leave it alone. At the end of the last episode, Damon Chapman, a relative of the victims, said he was sure Kevin did it. We knew Kevin did it. There's no doubt we knew it from the jump that Kevin did this. Kevin says he didn't do this crime. His brother Charles believes him. He says, Chuck, I didn't do this, man. He said, I did not do this. Charles mentioned that Kevin had an alibi witness that placed him 30 minutes away from the scene of the crime in Bucyrus, Ohio. The alibi is one of the most important things in a criminal case, particularly when there is a lack of forensic and physical evidence. Ask any defense attorney. Being able to prove that you were somewhere else during the crime is the strongest defense in the courtroom. So, where was Kevin Keith on the night of February 13, 1994? Here's Lori Rothschild again, a television producer and wrongful conviction advocate. Kevin has an alibi for that night. He has four witnesses attesting to it. His entire alibi is that earlier, he drove Zena to work. His girlfriend's name is Zena. He called Zena his fiance because Kevin actually had another girlfriend named Melanie. So the fiance, even though the ring wasn't on the finger, gave Zena a little bit more status, if you would. So Zena, his fiance, went to work at the factory. She worked at the uh, GE plant in Bucyrus. He dropped her off using her car. She had a blue Dodge Dynasty. He dropped Zena off at work. And he said that he then went home. And then after that, at around 7 o'clock, he went to his girlfriend's house. His girlfriend's name is Melanie Davison. And she lived in Mansfield. He took Zena's Blue Dynasty and drove to his girlfriend's house. He said that he went to Melanie's house and that Melanie cooked him some dinner. Well, I was always cooking. I had three children. So if I, I, I knew he was coming. It was just one of those things that happened. And I think it was Sunday. He was in her kitchen and they hung out and they had dinner. And he specifically remembers standing in the kitchen, looking out the window in her kitchen and seeing a drunk driver get pulled over. And he says, I remember this, you know, we were standing there watching because it was kind of funny. You know, it's like this guy, he gets pulled over for drunk driving and he knew it was drunk driving because the cops started putting bottles, all the bottles from the car on top of the car. You know, so they were watching it and the whole thing. And he referenced that the car had a number 10 on the top of it. I see that, I see this, well, he's standing right there and we see this car. He's standing right there. Okay. Next to you. Mm-hmm. And... He, was, he had his arms around me from behind. We were just standing there, and then all of a sudden it happened. We saw the lights. We saw the car. We saw, we saw the car 10, and we're just, we're just watching it. I looked up the police report on the possible drunk driver that was pulled outside of her house. I did a FOIA request for that. Not only did it happen, it was car number 10. They remembered it perfectly. How come none of that was ever listed, was ever brought up into Kevin's case? Never. She was discredited as a witness. What I remember about that night, living single, was uh, having their Valentine's finale show, something to that effect. And we got to choose 
the date that night. And we watched that with the kids. The Living Single was huge back then. In 1994, you could actually call up and press a number and you could affect the end of the show. Like it was a call-in. I don't remember this ever being done, so it was a big thing. And Living Single was, it was hot back in the day. And this was just one of those things that I, okay, I'm just going to say, if you were black, you wanted to be in front of the TV watching. Because it was positive and it was, it was us and it was, we had a say in it. I looked up what was on at 8.30 that night on February 13th, 1994, at 8.30 p.m., Living Single, and I will tell you, it was the Valentine's Day special. It's the exact episode she remembered. In fact, Melanie's downstairs neighbor, Judith Rogers, was also watching Living Single, which is how she knew what time she saw Melanie and Kevin leave the apartment. During Kevin's trial, Judith Rogers took the stand for questioning by Kevin's attorney, James Banks. What you're about to hear is a recreation pulled directly from the court transcript. Please state your name for the record. Judith Rogers. And Mrs. Rogers, where do you reside? In Mansfield. Do you know a Melanie Davison? Yes, sir, I do. And how do you know her? She lives up over me. I would like to bring your attention to the 13th of February, 1994. Do you recall that date? Yes, sir, I do. How do you recall that date? It was on Sunday, and I was, well, I was, I wanted to use the phone upstairs. So I went upstairs to use the phone, and Kevin opened the door and let me in. I went to call my mother about my older son being out, and I wanted to know why he wasn't in preparing for school. What time was this on Sunday? Approximately 8.30. In the evening? Yes, sir. And then what did you do with the rest of that evening? Well, I went back downstairs after I talked to my mother, and about 8.45, I seen Melanie and Kevin leaving, because I was watching In the Living Color. You were watching A Living Color? It was Living Single. Do you know what time that comes on? Yes, sir. What time did it come on? At 8.30. Now, you said that you watched Melanie Davison and Kevin Keith leave? Yes, sir. Leave the apartment? Yes, sir, I did. And what time was that? About 8.45. Melanie's neighbor, Judith Rogers, said she saw them both leave at 8.45, and she testified to that on the stand. So where were they going? He said that he wanted to go to his uncle's house, Jeannie Keith, in Crestline. They were in Mansfield at the time, and Crestline is about 30 minutes away from Mansfield. So he and Melanie got in the car, again, Xena's Blue Dynasty, and drove it to... Crestline to go see his aunt and uncle who lived in Crestline, Jeannie and Gracie Keith, who are unfortunately have passed away since. His story is he goes in that he wanted to borrow some money, knocks on the door, walks in, and several people say, including Kevin and the 
witnesses that saw him there, his uncle, his aunt, a guy named Roy Price, who was also there at the time, along with his wife, Yolanda. They all place him there at 9 o'clock at night. His aunt, Grace Keith, says he was there around 9, but can't be exactly sure what time it was. You're saying he was with you during the time of the killings? I can't say that because I don't know what time it was, no more than what I've seen on the news and in the paper. That's all I know. Give us the exact times he was with you. Well, really, I didn't pay no attention to that part of it either. But he was at my house maybe around <clears throat> 9 o'clock when my son said he came in and borrowed $5 from him. His family says there's a lack of evidence in the case, and they're standing by Keith's alibi that he was in Crestline the night of the murders. Kevin was at, at my house at 9 o'clock because I was laying down in the bed watching TV. When he come in the door, I looked up at the clock on the VCR. It was 9 o'clock. He come in, he said, hi, Uncle Gene, what you doing? I said, oh, I'm laying here watching TV. And then he went on back in the room talking to my stepson. And they asked my stepson, could he borrow $5 from me? He came in, knocked on the door, borrowed a couple dollars, chatted with them a little bit, left Melanie outside in the car. And the reason why he left Melanie in the car is because his aunt and I believe Yolanda Price knew Zena. According to Yolanda Price, a friend of the Keith family, she was there at Kevin's uncle's house that night. Yolanda Price gave an affidavit stating that she saw Melanie that night in the front seat of the car waiting for Kevin. Lori interviewed Yolanda Price in 2020. Here's what she had to say. When we got over to Gracie's, I remember Kevin coming in. And I remember seeing the car, Zena's car sitting there. And Melanie was in it. Now, I had never met Melanie, so I kept seeing this other girl. I'm like, that's not her. That's, that's not Zena. So I found out she was, it was Melanie. And I remember the car very definitely because I knew Zena. We worked at the same place. So she had a dynasty, a light blue dynasty. And I remember distinctly that was Zena's car that I saw her in. I wasn't there that long before it came. He left out before I did. He went towards Mansfield. I remember him coming in and asking Roy for $5 to try to get some gas money up, real cheap back then, because he had to pick up Zena later on that night. That's all I, all I remember is I remember when they came and got Kevin, I was like, he didn't seem to be up to nothing. Very odd. Very, very odd. So he left Melanie outside, got back in the car with Melanie, and drove back to Mansfield because he had to be in Bucyrus at 11 to pick up Zena from work. So he gets in the car in Crestline and drives back to Mansfield another 30 minutes, around 9.45, 10 o'clock. He stays there for a little bit and then says to Melanie, I gotta go, because he has, from Mansfield to Bucyrus, is another 35, 40 minutes. So he has to leave there to get to Bucyrus by 11 o'clock. And he does, and witnesses have said that he picked up Zena from work at 11 o'clock in Zena's Blue Dynasty. And that would have been two hours after the murders. Just so that we're clear on the timeline, 
the shooter walks into that apartment somewhere around 8.50. Gunshots happen somewhere around 9 o'clock because 9.06 is when 911 is called from the restaurant. Kevin would have to be in Bucyrus between 8.45 and 9.06 to commit the murders. And we have him, and he says, and Melanie says, and all the people in Crestline say, that between those times, he's either in Mansfield at Melanie's house or he's in Crestline, which is still 30 to 40 minutes away from Bucyrus. And he has all those alibi witnesses attesting to that. There was an eyewitness who stated that they saw a large black man. I believe her name was Nancy Smathers. This is Kevin's brother, Charles, again. Uh, she said that she couldn't identify the man. She wasn't close enough to see any type of facial features or, or anything of the sort. That is another piece that caused a lot of confusion because there was more than one large man uh, on that particular scene. There were reports from multiple eyewitnesses that saw a large black male around the Bucyrus estates on the night of the murders. People that live here have told News 4 and the police that they saw a man fitting Kevin Keith's description using this phone here at the apartment complex the night of the shootings. His name is Kerry Walter. He says he doesn't want to be linked with the horrible crime, but says it was him, not Keith, that witnesses saw around the crime scene after police and ambulances had arrived. Because I was around that area because I stay around there with a girlfriend of mine, but, you know, I was using the phone that night there, and I was around, you know, as far as being around, walking around the projects that time of night. Keith's attorney says he believes the witnesses thought it was Kevin Keith on the phone because they didn't know that Walter was back in the area. Walter had been in prison himself for three years and was just released four days before the murders. Project. If they're relying merely upon the fact that it was a large black man that they saw in the project area and then being shown pictures of Kevin or him being shown on TV and a person saying, yeah, that's the person I saw that night, if that's the information they're relying on, that's not too accurate. It needs to be made clear that police have not ever implicated Walter in this case. Carrie Walker actually looked a lot like Kevin, so much so that during trial, James Banks brought Carrie into the courtroom to have him stand side by side with Kevin to show their resemblance. Carrie had recently been released from jail and had just moved back into the area, which James Banks believed made him an unfamiliar face to the neighborhood. This is from a 1994 interview with Kevin and NBC4 of Columbus, Ohio. In this interview, Kevin has recently been arrested. He's wearing an orange jumpsuit and sitting next to his lawyer, James Banks. Though Kevin was never questioned by law enforcement, he was interviewed by the media. Where were you Sunday night at the time of the crime? Well, the newspaper said it happened at about nine or five after nine, and I was at my aunt's house in Crestline. And your aunt can testify to verify your story? Yes. Kevin Keith says he was at his aunt's house in Crestline at 9 o'clock Sunday, the same time three people were shot to death and three others wounded in Bucyrus, 12 miles away. Where were you before you went to your aunt's house? Well, I was at home. I was watching TV. I watched the news on up to 7. Then I rode to Mansfield. I was going to go to a friend's house, but there wasn't anybody there. 
By his own estimate, it takes only 15 minutes to get to Mansfield. That would put him there at 7.15. Throw in a half an hour trying to find his friend, now it's 7.45. So you were in Mansfield, and then you turned around and drove back to Crestline where you went to your aunt's house? Yes. And 15 more minutes for the drive back to Crestline, and it's only 8 o'clock. So where was he for at least an hour until he got to his aunt's house? Is there any possibility that the time frame is off here, that you're wrong about what time you were at your aunt's? Maybe you were there at 8.30 and, and left, or...? No, I'm pretty sure it was close. I'm pretty sure it was about 9. But you're not positive? I am positive. It's about, it was about five, a couple minutes till 9. This interview that Kevin did with News 4 looked particularly bad for his case. The alibi was broadcast on TV and left 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. wide open, a critical time period for an effective alibi. Not only was there plenty of unaccounted for time, but this alibi was also different than the one that eventually came out during trial. As it turns out, Kevin had personal motivations for not giving a full alibi to the media. We asked Kevin's current attorney for her take on this interview. When Kevin first got arrested, they thought this was going to go away. This is Rachel Troutman from the Ohio Public Defender's Office. When I watched the footage of Kevin from the news interviews that his attorney let him do, I had a, a lot of thoughts about it. One being, I can't think of any other case in which an attorney voluntarily sets their client up in front of the media. I mean, you have to have a whole lot of faith in your client's innocence if that's something you're going to do. Probably the thing that stuck out to me the most about those interviews is that his attorney lets him answer um, pretty much any question about the, the murders that he was arrested for. And then the reporter starts to ask him questions about the drug charges from the January prior to the, the murders. And his attorney says something along the lines of, he can't answer questions about that because, you know, he, because of pending charges. The attorney stops the questioning because he has drug charges pending. So won't let him answer because there are charges pending. But he lets him answer all of these questions about the, the aggravated murder when there are aggravated murder charges pending and a death sentence on the table. I believe that his attorney and Kevin, obviously, they both knew um, he was answering questions about something that he did not do. As an attorney, in my brain, that's the only thing that makes sense. That's the only thing that can explain the length to which he allowed his client to be questioned and then the immediate shift in the demeanor of both of them when drug charges were suggested. I think there's a couple of things that probably account for the wishy-washy timeline. I think that, for one thing, he had no idea that he was a suspect, which is one of the reasons why when they arrested him, I mean, he's just sitting in his living room watching soap operas. He wasn't cataloging where he had been and who he had been with. And I think he was trying to cover his relationship. He knew that Zena was going to see this, this interview. And he didn't want to be admitting on TV that he was with his girlfriend, Melanie Davison. I mean, once he realized, once things got real and um, continued down the path towards trial, then he came clean and his relationship with Zena didn't last. I could only imagine what Kevin would be thinking, but I'm torn on this one. I think if he didn't know how serious this was, and in his mind, he thought, okay, I know I didn't do this. There's no evidence that can link me here. So what am I going to save? I'm going to save my relationship. And that's the one thing that he ultimately tried to protect. 
someone that's not media savvy and doing an interview about their alibi. I get it for sure, because I understand that he was protecting his relationship with Zena and not wanting his girlfriend to know about this other relationship. But looking at it from like a legal perspective now, you're like, oh my God, just don't speak. Because it ultimately really damaged his whole alibi. I, I mean, I would, I'll never forget it, never. For Damon Chapman, brother to Marichelle Chapman, and uncle to four-year-old victim Marche, February 13th, 1994 is a night he'll always remember. The day that happened, I came there like 15 minutes later. I could go in that apartment till this day and show you every place where my sister was laying, my niece was laying. Evil monsters, I mean, he was he's evil. And he's really more evil to shoot a four-year-old twice in the back. I just think about it all the time, man. And what makes it so bad, I work in Besire, so I work like close to that place. And it's like, it just dwells on me all the time. Yeah, I think about before, before that happened, you know, it was, it was, it was fun. We had everybody, you know. I enjoyed being around my sister and now being around my little four-year-old niece. I enjoyed that. That was like some of the best times of my life. The police tried to restrain me from going in. They tried to stop me from going in, but there was no stopping me from going in. I knew that was my sister's house, and I just, I went in there. Juanita and Quentin was laying right beside each other. And I was talking to Juanita and Quentin because they was the only ones prison because I checked everybody. And they're like, don't touch him, don't touch him. But I was, you know, it was me. And I, I'm like, I want to I wanted see if my people still alive. And none of them was besides Quentin and Juanita. And I'm trying to talk to them. I was asking them, like, who did this to you? I was like, who did this to you? And they're trying to speak to me. You know what I'm saying? But they couldn't speak because... They was hurting so bad. All they could do was, like, just, like, they was, like, breathe. I could still see Quanita and Quinn's eyes just real big, just looking at me, like, just fighting for their life. Just because they was young, you can't say that, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. No, they know what they're talking about. They know who shot them. Two kids are not going to forget nobody's face who shot them and tried to kill them. It's worth noting there's no documentation in police files that Damon Chapman was at the scene of the crime that night or in the apartment, especially while the victims were still there. If this was the case, the scene of the crime was not locked down by the police as it should have been, according to active crime scene protocol. Two days after the crime on February 15th, Kevin Keith was arrested. Three days after his arrest, six-year-old survivor Juanita Reeves was interviewed by the police for the first time while she was still recovering at the hospital. What you're about to hear is an excerpt from her account of the night. Friday, February 18, 1994, 11.33 a.m. And with me in the room, and this is Captain Michael Crawler. 
Captain Roger Blankenship behind you, and your mommy's here. That's uh, Joyce Reeves, and you're Cornito, right? Lead detective Captain Michael Corwin introduces himself, as well as Captain Roger Blankenship. Juanita's mother, Joyce Reeves, is also present in the hospital room. Do you remember what happened while you were there? Can you tell me about it? Okay, why don't you tell me in your own words what happened, okay? Oh, that's Bruce. That was Bruce. Who's Bruce? That's When interviewed for the first time by police, victim Juanita Reeves doesn't say the name Kevin. She says the gunman was someone named Bruce. At the time of this interview, Kevin has already been arrested, but Juanita, one of the only living eyewitnesses, gives a different name to the detective. When the police ask, who's Bruce? Juanita says, my daddy's friend. It's important to note that no one named Bruce has ever been charged with this crime. So who's Bruce? And where did the police get Kevin's name from in the first place? We'll get into that and more next time on The System. The System is a Spotify original series produced in partnership with Big City TV and Tenderfoot TV. I'm Kim Kardashian, your host and executive producer. From Big City TV, executive producer is Lori Rothschild and Saldi. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Lead creative producer is Meredith Stedman. Production, editing, and sound design by Tristan Bankston and Cameron Taggy. Additional sound design by Cooper Skinner. Production manager is Tracy Kaplan. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Voiceover work by Miles Agee. Associate producer is Jamie Albright, mixed and mastered by Cooper Skinner and Devin Johnson.